had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. I'm in love with Could you. make me be true. Snap out of it. Could make me be true. The magnificence that comes out of your eyes and your voice and the way you stand there and the way you walk. You're lit from within, Tracy. It had to be you, wonderful you. It had to be you. Hello, romantics. Welcome to A Pod to Be You, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Bish Mather. In each episode, I'll be chatting with a guest about one of their favorite romantic comedies from classics to modern hits. My guest today is Zita Short. How are you? Oh, thank you, Manisha. I'm very well today. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to have you here uh, on the show. Um, would you like to introduce the film for us today? So today we're going to be talking about it happened one night, which basically helped to solidify all of the romantic comedy conventions. It does fit into the screwball comedy genre, but I think even looking at something like My Man Godfrey from around this period, you notice how it happened one night seems more like the prototypical rom-com where you have the uh, woman and man who hate one another, but eventually realize that they're in love. And it's just perfect. I think it really sums up all of the things that make this sort of traditional romantic comedy great. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Do you remember the first time you saw the film? Well, it would have been very early on into the period when I was trying to seriously get into film and watch classic film. And I think this really helped me to stay interested because I went, oh, no, older movies can seem really, if not modern, just similar to modern films. And I watched it and I was just enchanted by it. I remember thinking, this is so funny. This is so quick. Both of these stars are giving these sort of artificial star performances, but they're so likable. And these performances are so much more sophisticated than something that you might get now. Mm -hmm. And I just loved the main couple. I was completely rooting for them to get together throughout. And I thought the ending was so sweet. Just everything about it captured my interest. And I thought, okay, Claudette Colbert, I have to see all of her other films. Right. Yeah, I was just totally into her. And fortunately, she's one of the old Hollywood actresses who has a pretty solid filmography. So I wasn't really putting a foot wrong in trying to see something like Since You Went Away. She's also very good in that. Yeah, um, I watched this movie uh, in college. I took a class on film genres um, or actually, no, it was a class on film, like in uh, like comedy films uh, in Amer- in Hollywood. And we talked about it happened one night per hour uh, section on ruined comedies. And to be honest, I enjoyed the film, but I was kind of, uh, you know, I was about 19, 20 years old. I was very young. 
And I was just like, well, this is just like every romantic comedy that I've seen, you know, growing up. I don't know what's so special about it. I didn't know the, you know, I didn't know the history behind it. Um, and uh, of course, as I learned more about classic film and studied more of the genre, I realized, first of all, that it was the template for every romantic comedy ever made after that it was influential and for all the reasons I thought it was very cliche and stereotypical was it invented all those stereotypes and cliches and tropes um, and, or at least codified them into, you know, something that we are, that's something that is familiar to us to this day. So my appreciation for the film uh, went up having uh, learned that. And then over the years, you know, it's just one of those movies that I would watch on television or I would, you know, just, come across um, on streaming services and, uh, you know, I read about it. I watched, you know, featurettes on it. I listened to podcasts about it. Like, um, and so my love for the movie grew and grew just hearing everyone speak about it. And uh, it's since become one of my favorite romantic comedies. I, uh, I have it on my list of favorite romantic comedies on my list of favorite <laughs> films of all time because of all the reasons you mentioned, it's so charming, the leads are so likable. Claudette Colbert especially, I found to be in it. Just an absolutely lovable romantic heroine. Uh, Clark Gable is very, he's such a rascal, he's so charming. (laughs) And this movie holds up extremely well. Like it's very funny, it's very very fast. The sight gangs are really clever. Um, The scenes are really, uh, really exciting to watch. And yeah, so it's such a, it's such a great pick. Um, this uh, this movie is featured in the opening of my podcast. The my, what my, I think yeah. the best scene in the movie when they're acting like the married couple at the motel. Oh yes, um, so yes. so great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm really really glad that uh, you chose the film. What are some of your favorite like moments in the film? Well, for me, one of the things that I would say makes this one special that maybe differentiates it from the films that it has inspired is that it uses that battle of the sexes trope in a really inspired way. I like the fact that, yes, Ellie has her issues. She's very spoiled. She's very selfish. She's sheltered. She doesn't know how to deal with the real world, but she really does go on a journey and learn how to become, if not self-sufficient, she learns how to work in a team with Mm -hmm. Peter Warren, and he also learns something from her. So I liked the fact that there's that teamwork element. And I think one of the many reasons why the hitchhiking scene is so great is that there is this element of her finally showing him that she's also capable of having some street smarts of being able to get ahead based on her own wits instead of relying on him all the time because we do have him getting her carrots at several points having to take care of her but I liked the fact that she also gets to do something for him she's also contributing instead of just being dragged around everywhere and being useless and of course the scene itself is very well set up I think it's very basic. We get this shot of her exposed ankles and, well, she pulls up her legs to reveal her pantyhose, not legs, her skirt to reveal her pantyhose. But it's just very funny, but also works in terms of character development. And I think that's really 
sophisticated comedy because if you watch an Adam Sandler movie, for example, it's just gags for the sake of having a joke in there and you learn nothing about the characters. None of it seems to play much of a role in the larger plot, but with this one, it really does seem like the joke writers considered how to tie the jokes into the major themes of the film or the points that they're at. And that was really pleasing to me that they had taken the time to think about that. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I think the comedy in this movie works so well because the characters are so well drawn and also often very surprising. You know, like you mentioned Ellie being very, um, you know, she's kind of a, she's a little, she's spoiled, she's sheltered, she's privileged, she's all that. But, you know, she reveals to have a really, uh, just a really like fiery spirited personality underneath all that. And I mean, I think that's not even that much of a surprise because she shows so much agency, even in the beginning, you know, just, you know, uh, jumping off the boat and running off and, you know, and kind of evading, you know, the press and, and everything. And, um, so she immediately we kind of find her endearing because for all these, you know, seemingly negative qualities or someone that's really, really exciting to be around and really um, has a really strong personality, really, uh, you know, she is like a, she has an intelligence, she has a wit to her, she's very cool. Um, and, um, and Clark Gable, he, yeah, he looks you know, he comes also comes across, you know, selfish, kind of narrow-minded, kind of a, a jerk, but he reveals himself as caring and uh, accepting. And, um, you know, I love that you mentioned that they, they both really offer a lot in the story. You know, it's not, you're right. She's, she's not being dragged around. She also has things to teach him. And, um, you know, the, the interplay between them, especially in the hitchhiking scene that you mentioned, uh, it reminded me of the um, the scene at the deli in When Harry Met Sally. And I remember, uh, I remember um, uh, the uh, I remember in that film what what they wanted to do was um, have Sally, you know, teach something to Harry about women or about relationships, about sex, about you know dating. And not just have it be where he's the one that's always, you know, giving her advice or telling her something or being like, well, this is how it is in relationships. You know, she offers that too. And, and in other scenes, there, the balance is there. And I think that's very clearly seen. And it happened one night where there's such a balance, there's such a camaraderie between them and that they are growing and developing and learning from each other and having fun with each other. And yeah, it's pretty um it's it, the characters are so well drawn and you know your point about the um jokes in a kind of a more lesser comedy just being jokes for the sake of jokes like that's such a good point because it happened one night it comes from the characters and the situations and everything every every kind of comic part in this movie really just goes moves the plot forward And in terms of Gable, as you referenced, I think at the time this was really seen as him stepping out of his lane as a star. I think he would go on to become a mainstay in the romantic genre, if not the romantic comedy genre. Mm -hmm. But it is funny if you 
know the context for the time, the scene where he is intimidating Oscar Shapley, where he's pretending that he's involved in criminal activity. I think that would have been even funnier for audiences <laughs> at the time because he previously was known for playing criminals on screen or just bad guys. In Night Nurse with Barbara Stanwyck, he plays somebody who wants to starve a child to death. So that's pretty extreme. So they're going from seeing him as an embodiment of evil to seeing him as this charming rogue who's slightly down on his luck. So I think it's a really smart touch to have him basically parodying his persona or his screen persona at that point in one scene because it helps us to distance him from it. But I also found it really endearing that Peter isn't just written as hyper-competent alpha male. I think one of the big issues with most of the Matthew McConaughey romantic comedies Mm -hmm. is that they give him too many attributes in those where he's meant to be perfect and he has the perfect life as a playboy. And you think, yes, Kate Hudson, she's very beautiful, very charming, but if his life is so great, why would he have as much reason to give up? everything for that and I think in this one it begins with him getting fired from his job so we're not starting from a point of going oh Peter he's so cool he has the most desirable lifestyle and he's also oddly neurotic as the film goes on I definitely wouldn't classify him as a typical leading man and I know Clark Gable's star quality was often very difficult to pin down where he's meant to be this uh, irascible figure who's sort of a bad boy in a way for the 30s but then he's also smiling at the time all the time and it's almost like he's laughing at his own sexiness so he's very odd it's very difficult to figure out exactly what makes him so special and yet you just love him immediately in this one he he's very lovable you're just on his side even when he's almost immediately sparring with ellie who we also love so it's amazing that we can see this situation from both of the characters perspectives and we don't really take sides it's really good and then as time goes on of course as they're starting to get along there's something so wonderful about seeing two characters that we are really rooting for getting along absolutely yeah you know um one thing that I really love about this movie that you really highlighted is like how much uh Peter is in some ways he's like, you, you know, you're saying he's neurotic. He's kind of backed into a corner in some ways. Like, you know, it's not that he's like this ace reporter, like, <laughs> oh, excuse me. Um, you know, he's like, he's going after, you know, this like, you know, public scandal story for the money. And, and you know, so it's like, um, you know, the, the comparison to Matthew McConaughey, I think is so interesting because, uh you know, you're absolutely right. In not just McConaughey, but a lot of these romantic comedies, the characters are so perfect. They're the best at their game. They're, you know, have all this money and they're rich and they'll do this and that. And, you know, but this movie, like, there's a real struggle here between them um, and, and struggle within himself, too, of like whether to, 
um, you know, sell her out for the story or, you know, protect her. And, you know, even she's, you know, thinking like, how much can I really trust him? And how much can I really, um, you know, like what, basically they either of them don't really know what the end of the story looks like, which is kind of um, exciting. And, um, you know, I, I agree with you that, um, I, I agree with you that, you know, to see them start off hating each other and then slowly develop, you know, into some kind of camaraderie, into friendship, into a romance. Um, it's, it's exciting. It happens really um, naturally, actually. Um, I really love the title of this movie. It happened one night because, um, you know, they spend several nights together. They spend several days together and it's no, I don't think either of them are ever really sure when they began to develop feelings for each other. Um, you know, the spark kind of even starts in the beginning, even when they're kind of at each other's throats and then, you know, it takes um, Ellie revealing her feelings uh, to him in the middle of the night like that. And um it's just such a like, it's such a perfect title because it shows just how gradual and subconscious their feelings are for each other as they become closer and closer and they go through all these, you know, experiences together, they, all these misadventures, like this, the guy running off with their suitcases or having to evade the police and, you know, being stuck in a barn and stuff like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, it's so gradual. You don't even notice that it's happening until all of a sudden they're, you know, in love with each other. They want to marry each other. And uh, you're like, it just feels so inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. And there's also one of the famous scenes that we should probably discuss is mm-hmm. the one where Clark Gable undresses and then <laughs> oh, yeah. she goes behind the walls of Jericho and she's also uh, taking off her clothes and he's noticing that. And I think that would have been very sexy for the time. I know we were coming into the era where the Hays Code was in effect, so they couldn't quite be as wild or outrageous as they had been during the pre-code era. But this still feels very steamy for the time and you get shirtless Clark Gable which is certainly something that I enjoyed and I think the scene is so fun in part because they are just having fun while they do it I know she's being very prim and proper and a bit prissy but there is the sense that he's toying with her I do think it's a problem when you have romantic comedies that want to be funny but then there are occasional scenes where they want it to be sexy and they shift the tone way too much. So you go, yeah. oh, are we in an erotic drama? All of a sudden, <laughs> this does not feel at home in the film that I'm watching. And in this one, they really delicately blend the comedic elements with the sexiness. And I think it's good that he is still quick-witted and smart-elecky as he is showing off his virility. And she also, it's quite amazing that Capra gets in that shot of her. I suppose she is putting on her fairly conservative pajamas, but she's still mostly in the dark. And so I think for us, it does feel almost like we are seeing her in the nude and it gives us a sense of emotional intimacy with her that we might not have had otherwise there's definitely something to be said about the power of suggestion 
and mm-hmm. um, subtlety in, in, in a scene like this. I personally, I find this to be a more, uh, more intimate, more, um, you know, more um, the, the, the sexual tension in the film feels more potent with something like that, where it is kind of the two of them, you know, undressing on opposite sides through shadows, kind of sneaking peeks at each other or wanting to. And, you know, as much as she's being very prim and proper, I think, she, you know, I, I, and my impression is that she's wondering what's going on on the other side, just like how he's wondering <laughs> what's going on on the other side. And, you know, I agree with you that, you know, even, even within the restrictions of the censorship, um, I think this, it, in some ways, I feel like the movie achieves even more tension because there's so much that they're not showing or saying or doing. Uh, I mean, I, I know the the Hayes Code was, you know, not a great thing, but in some ways it forced filmmakers to really look at things and try to get around it and be more creative and more suggestive. And I, I appreciate that, especially someone like Frank Capra, who's an excellent filmmaker, uh, you know, the way that he kind of skirts the restrictions <laughs> makes his film seem more timeless and more exciting and also uh, more unique rather than mm-hmm. just kind of being very blatant about it, like how some modern movies are. I mean, not even, mo- not even modern, but like the 70s into the 90s. Detectives. Oh, that's part of it, work. Peter, what do I do? What do I do? Maybe I can jump out of the window. They won't no, see no, me. Here, here, here. Sit down. Here, here. Well, sit down. Get your hands out of your eyes. Get your hands out of your eyes. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I got a letter from Aunt Bella last week. Uh, she says if we don't stop over in Wilkes-Barre, she'll never forgive us. What are you talking? Uh, the baby's new due next month. They want us to come. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. She saw your uh, sister on the street the other day. She says she's looking swell. Come in. You know, I hope Aunt Bella has a boy, don't you? Grandma says it's going to be a girl, though, and she hasn't missed calling one in years. Man here to see your sweetheart. Who, me? You want to see me? What's your name? Are you addressing me? Yeah, what's your name? Hey, wait a minute. That's my wife you're talking to. What do you mean, coming here? What do you want, anyway? We're looking for somebody. Yeah, well, look your head off, but don't come busting in here. This isn't a public park. I got nurse to take a sock at you. Take it easy, son. Take it easy. And these men are detectives, Mr. Moore. I don't care if they're the whole police department. They can't come busting in here shooting questions of my wife. Now, don't get so excited, Peter. The man just asked you a civil question. Oh, is that so? Say, how many times have I told you to stop butting in when I'm having an argument? Well, you don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to lose your temper. That's what you said the other time, too. Every time I try to protect you. The other night at the Elf's dance, when that big Swede made a pass at you. He didn't make a pass at me. I told you a million times. Oh, no, I saw him. Kept pawing you all over the dance floor. He didn't. You were drunk. Ah, nuts. You're just like your old man. What's oh. a plumber's daughter? Always a plumber's oh. daughter. Then an ounce of brains in your whole family. Oh, Peter, what are you going for? Them? I won't tell you. Ah, oh, shut up. Oh, you what you've done? Sorry, Mr. Warren, but you see, we've got to check up on everybody. We're looking for a girl by the name of Ellen Andrews. You know, the daughter of that big Wall Street mug. Yeah, well, it's too bad you're looking for a plumber's daughter. Quick baller! Quick baller! I told you they were a Uh, speaking of Frank Capra, what what are your thoughts on him as a filmmaker in general? Like, have you seen a lot of his films? 
I would say I have I have missed out on one classic, which is Arsenic and Old Lace. I mm. haven't seen that one yet, but I think in terms of the ones that everybody considers to be classics, I have seen those. So it's things like Mr. Deeds Goes to Town and It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I think for me, it is an issue that I love it happened one night so much because I just have astronomical expectations for all of his other right, films. Right. And even though I admire elements of many of them, I still get this nagging feeling that, oh, but it's not. It happened one <laughs> night. And that's just always an issue. And I think it's a shame that this is the one that I saw first because perhaps I would have had a more positive response to some of the other ones if this weren't the perfect masterpiece that it is. And having said all that, there are still things that I really like about his other films. I think Gene yeah. Arthur is really wonderful in a lot of them, and he was very good at getting the best out of the actors that he worked with. And I do like the fact that a lot of his humour or the humour in his films felt quite gentle instead of being really aggressive and punchy as it might have been in other films from this period and I think that it pairs really well with his humanistic view of the world I know with a lot of his other films there's controversy over where his political views lie and whether his films are sort of secretly conservative even though they put up this facade of being extremely liberal and progressive for the time but I do think his empathy for his characters always shines through and that's a really positive thing yeah I, I really have to echo a lot of what you're saying um, I find him to be um, so empathetic as a filmmaker and I think he gets a reputation, especially among, you know, here, you know, in America, around people in my age group of someone or a little older than me as being someone who's very sentimental and maudlin and kind of mawkish. And, you know, especially a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, which has become a, you know, holiday classic. Everyone watches it and they think of it as this very... Um, you know, saccharine movie. And I think there, his films are always about really in, uh, interesting conflicts within American society. Um, I mean, within a very specific part of American society, you know, of course his movies are all very white. Many of them are middle-class, mm -hmm. you know, to wealthy class. Like, um, so of course it's very narrow-minded, but, you know, with it being the time that he grew up in, I really wouldn't expect anything else, but, um, I think a lot of his movies have really interesting conflicts about, you know, classism and, you know, whether a movie is conservative or liberal, I think that's really up to debate. Uh, it's really up to, it's up for debate and up to the individual. I, I think his movies are a little bit on the um, conservative side in the sense that he values, you know, family and um, the community and things like that. But, you know, I, uh, our mutual friend Dave Giannini, when he was talking about It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life with um, Marcella Pico, was saying that It's a Wonderful Life is very socialist <laughs> because it's about the community coming together and, you know, supporting one another. And um, that's, I think that's a, really, that's a really interesting take that I somewhat agree with. Uh, but I think, like, 
in comparing his other movies to It Happened One Night, I mean, it feels, um, It Happened One Night just feels so different just because it's very much a pure romantic comedy. Uh, not just because it set the template, but even his other movies, which have a lot of romantic elements in it, there's more to, there's a little bit of different plot point. It's, it's, it's more of a plot point in a larger story where this is very much, you know, boy meets girl, they hate each other, they become friends, they love each other, they get together. And I, I think, you know, and I agree with you also that the, um, you know, Gene Arthur, Donna, Donna Reed and all of his movies, like they're very, you know, in, interesting uh, women in his films are very funny often. They have a lot of personality, but this one, it happened one night is, is the true two-hander, you know, where you're, pr- you're pretty much with these two characters for the entire movie. And it's very, you know, they, they, they have equal screen time, equal, you know, equal, you know, beats to, to play in the film. And um, so that that's what I think separates it. And, um, you know, I, I do, I do like that it happened one night is somewhat of a class satire, um, you know, with Ellie being so, mm-hmm. you know, she's, I think she's a kind of a, it's, it's kind of poking fun a little at, you know, these sort of like wealthy elite in like depression era, but also showing that, you know, just because she comes from this background doesn't mean she doesn't have a spine or, you know, she might, she's might be spoiled, but she's not like, um, she's not a horrible person. <laughs> um, and, and Pete, Peter, on the other hand, like he might also be roguish and coming from a lower class, but he's not horrible either. Like they can find a way to come together and, and uh, they complement each other in so many ways. You know, there are strengths and weaknesses complement each other. And in terms of the class satire, I almost think that what we get here feels a bit more sophisticated than some mm-hmm. of the class satire in some of his overtly political films where it's, it's a wonderful life, as you referenced. Lionel Barrymore's character in that is evil, just outright <laughs> villainous. He's probably the worst example of a capitalist, and his dream is basically to bankrupt a whole lot of people and push them out of their homes and he is actively seeking to ruin lives and I think this one almost gets to the core of part of the problem with people who have just grown up with generational wealth where she is so isolated from the problems of the real world and when she's doing all of these things like expecting the bus driver to stick around for another 20 minutes simply because she wants to walk around a bit. She just expects that to happen. It's not like she even considers the impact that that could have on other people. None none of these comments that she's making where she sounds incredibly entitled and you do want to laugh at her, but she's not doing it maliciously. Yeah, she's just doing it because she has expected this her entire life. And so I think you see how that entitlement, that unconscious entitlement can really not hurt poor people directly, but you see how this behavior led to this class of people who were just totally disconnected from the real world and just didn't have any understanding of what life as a poor person was like, and that's 
really terrible to have a society in which the different social classes can't even attempt to understand one another. And so I think you do get some of that recognition coming through as she spends more time with ordinary folk. She starts to realize, oh no, it is really difficult to carve out a living when you're not a wealthy heiress as I am. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And like, I think that's why this movie really holds up is that that's something that, you know, is relevant to this day. I mean, even now, our, you know, wealth classes are getting even further apart than they were in the 1930s. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, people, um, you know, they just don't have the, they just don't have the awareness and they don't have, they don't have a reason to, to see the real world because they can be in their own little thing and in their own little bubbles and their own little society and stuff. But, you know, with this movie, Ellie is forced into the situation and she has to rely on herself. I mean, you know, Peter is there, but, you know, <laughs> as much as she doesn't know she can trust him, she has to rely on herself to get by. And, you know, when she, um, at the end, when she kind of says she will, well, she goes back to, Mary Wesley, it's sort of a defeat for her because she's realized, okay, maybe I can't survive because I fell in love with someone and he, you know, abandoned me in her mind. Um, And the audience doesn't want her to get back with Clark Gable. And, you know, we don't want her to see, we don't want to see her in that, um, go back to that world where she can just be this like, you know, high society girl with no attachment to anything real. And, when she gets with Peter, it's a victory that in some ways that like there's a chance for people like her to, you know, get out of their little sheltered space and see the world and learn from it and survive it in and, and find, you know, find some happiness there. Mm. And we also get, and this is another romantic comedy trope, but mm-hmm. she has a very, fraught but close relationship with her father and her father's judgment ultimately means a lot to her when it comes to who she ends up with and I know some people would argue oh it's paternalistic and it's negative that we're going back to this traditional idea of fathers owning their daughters in some way but I think they do it so beautifully in this one where the early scene you could sense that it is really horrifying for her that her father has slapped her and that is really crossing a line for her and even though she is upset by the fact that she has so little freedom and she does disagree with her father over this very important issue in her life she loves him very much and values his opinion a lot and so I think when she eventually does find or no gets caught and then gets brought back to her father I think it's really nice that we do get a few scenes where that relationship is really focused on and we see oh no he does have her best interests at heart despite what he initially did to her and it's just really good to have a focus on family values as Capra might have put it without it being the 
extremely traditional family that you might have seen in something like It's a Wonderful Life, where you're meant to be shocked and horrified when Donna Reed has glasses on and she's a librarian. I always find that funny. I think in this one, the emphasis almost on the fact that he's a single parent does feel a bit different from other Capra films where it is him trying to shoulder the weight of being both a mother and a father to this girl and I think you really get the sense of how world weary he is in relation to parenting because it does seem like she has been extremely unhappy over the past few years and I think he finally accepts that oh no I need to let her make her own decisions if she's not going to be miserable all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I I think this kind of relationship could be seen as paternalistic and condescending and, you know, that. But I think I totally agree that it's handled so beautifully and that I think um, he's genuinely worried for her future by marrying this wrong guy and he's genuinely worried for her when, you know, she's out in the real world and doesn't, he doesn't know where he is or where she is. And that their relationship seems very strong, even with this big conflict, because they are both coming from like love for each other. And, um, you know, I didn't even, didn't really register that he was a single parent. I mean, I knew that he was, but like, just, I'd never thought of it that way. And in some ways, just like how, Peter and Ellie have their flaws and their, you know, quirks and neuroses. He has his own too. And um, that his is that he just doesn't know. He doesn't know the right way to really reach his daughter, whom he clearly loves and thinks that, you know, um, trapping her on a yacht or disagreeing with her marriage choice or whatever is the right way to go. And, um, you know, he has his own little mini arc in the film of learning, you know, that his daughter is, is, is an adult and can, you know, to support her decisions and be there for her. So I really do, um, I really do love their relationship. I mean, I think that um, it's so, uh, it's just like, it's just wonderful, these character relationships, because they feel so strong. I mean, her father has barely a few, you know, a few scenes in the film, but uh, his character comes across so strongly and you see his point of view, you see his perspective, you understand their dynamic almost immediately. It's just, it's, you know, really, um, uh, really a testament to the, the writing by uh, Robert uh, Riskin and Frank Capra. And um, of course, uh, Walter Connolly as uh, Ellie's father is just, you know, really great performances and, and, and work done in the film and I also wondered what did you think of the famous sing-along scene in the bus with the daring young man on the flying trapeze Um, I mean I just I loved it I mean it's so charming it's so like you know I think a lot of romantic comedies these days have a sing-along scene (laughs) you know it's such a like common thing that is in every movie and it's so funny to think of this movie having one like that, where that was probably a very popular song that everyone knows. And yeah, I thought it was very, it was very cute. Um, And again, it's just nice to, it's fun to see these characters and enjoy themselves and be in a community where everyone's kind of 
banding together and, and spending the time on this bus singing. How about yourself? Oh, I agree. And I also think in terms of tying into some of the attempts that Capra was making to try to capture the sadness of the 1930s working class, where I think we are meant to sense that most of the people on this bus are very poor. You have the woman who is basically dying because she hasn't eaten anything because she had to pay for her ticket. And I think this moment is meant to be a moment of uplift where, oh, look, they can all be united. Even Ellie can be a part of this and they can all get along despite the fact that they're all going through these individual struggles in their lives. And so I think that's part of what helps it to feel like such a triumphant moment. But I also think the song is just really catchy. And I thought Gable and Colbert did a really good job at seeming genuinely enthusiastic about it, which is always funny because you read that in real life, neither of them wanted to make this film. Once she finished shooting it, she told a friend that it was the worst movie (laughs) she had ever made. So I would have assumed that you would watch it and she would seem really worn out or just she would be phoning it in, not trying that hard. And yes, you watch it and she does seem marvellous. She seems like she showed up to set every day with a smile on her face and you would never get the sense from watching her on screen that this was not a project that she was wholly invested in. Yeah, you know, I really love stories like that about classic film, uh, just because it feels so, um, it makes it feel more organic that they become classics and that it's really like audiences um, really like picking up on the film and, you know, finding, finding, finding appreciation for it over the years. You know, something like, like Casablanca as well, and just movies where, um, there's like no, not that many expectations, just kind of seemed as like a filler movie, um, not really meant to be this like huge, you know, genre inventing <laughs> film, right? <laughs> and then it just organically, just people fall in love with it over the years and it influences people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Claudette, Claudette Colbert, you know, it's, you know, her performance is really great in the movie. And I, I think it's really interesting that she's kind of bored making it because like mm-hmm. Ellie is kind of bored, you know, and mm-hmm. she kind of has like a lot of, um, and, and so in so many of her early scenes, she just seems, everything seems so tedious for her. And uh, I think that may have been coming from, um, you know, coming from some reality of her participation. Uh, I was just reading um, earlier today about, all these different actresses that wanted the part or were offered the part, like Mary Hopkins, Myrna Loy, Betty Davis, uh, Margaret Sullivan, uh, Loretta Young, like all these people, you know, were wanted, wanted it and, um, you know, or, or were offered it and then rejected it. Um, and I think what's interesting is I really couldn't imagine anyone else but Claudette Colbert in the film or Clark Gable either. Um, I'm not sure if there was a hot chase for, you know, to fill that role as much as it was for the women, but um, it's, I I can't imagine this movie without them. I think they have such a unique energy together because she's so sophisticated, you know, she comes, you know, she's 
you know, she feels like royalty, Claudette Colbert, maybe because, of, you know, she's European, I don't know, but she just has this air to her that I've seen. She's in so French. Many, she's yeah. French, yeah. <laughs> Um, but she just has that, you know, that energy for her. And Clark Gable, just, he's a guy's guy, you know, like he's the kind of guy that can like, you know, chug 12 beers a night and kind of you know, <laughs> want to like shoot the breeze with and stuff. Um, I'm sure he did that in real life. But um, so they just have, the, they have such a unique energy, you know, like I, I, I'd be curious to see Betty Davis in this movie, but um, mm-hmm. I think of all the names, I mean, I love Betty Davis, but of all the names I saw on the list, I thought she'd be the one that I'd be most interested in seeing. Um, Margaret Sullivan as well. You know, I mean, of course I, I love her in um, Shop Around the Corner. So I could mm-hmm. see her doing this role as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just, it's just so interesting to think about movies just kind of being made as, you know, with not that many expectations to it and becoming classics um, and influence. And actually that, that brings me to my next point. Um, you know, I think like, for some reason I was reading some article about movies that should never be remade. And this was one of them, this is years ago. And I remember thinking, like, it's impossible to remake this movie because it is so influential and has such a legacy to it that, you know, to do a remake of it with, like, these characters and these situations (laughs) would feel redundant in a way that um, most... I mean, I know some remakes seem redundant anyway, but I think, like... um, like it seems almost silly to not want a remake of this movie because like so many movies over the years have been influenced by it. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, you know, a, a modern update of the film, what that, if that's something that might appeal to you or if it's just that, you know, this movie is perfect as is and that it's, you know, it's legacy speaks for itself. Mm. Well, I think I completely agree with what you're saying where, it's almost pointless to directly remake this film Mm -hmm. because countless films have taken the formula that this movie invented or popularized and used it. So you can basically see this story in slightly different incarnations in a whole lot of different films. So to do a direct remake would sort of be pointless. And yes, you're not going to top Claudette Colbert, Clark Gable, Frank Capra. There are some great actors around today, but I don't think anybody really has a handle on the screwball comedy genre in the way that Colbert did. Yeah, um, I I agree. Uh, actually, there have been a few direct remakes internationally. Um, the, uh, the Wikipedia page, which I read earlier, <laughs> has a whole paragraph on Indian remakes of this movie, some of which I've ah. seen, <laughs> um, which doesn't surprise me because, um, you know, this movie lends this premise, this concept lends itself so well to Bollywood movies and movies of other, of other Indian languages in India. Um, and I think some of them work, some of them don't work. I mean, I, I think a movie, like, to do a remake of this movie, you're absolutely right. It, it boils down to casting, uh, just because a lot of what this movie does has become, you know, like, very uh, uh, very important tropes in the genre. So, like, to do it well would mean just to, like, find the right pair of actors. And, I mean, I'm sure I could make a list of modern actors who could do a movie like this, Um 
would they have the same magic? I don't know. I don't think so. Not because they're bad, but just because like, it just, this movie is just so perfect as is that um, it would be really hard to, to recapture it totally. I mean, it had to be a totally unique take on the story in some way, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, I really would recommend um, listeners of the podcast who have not seen the film to watch it. And especially if they love romantic comedies, which, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do <laughs> love romantic comedies. Um, but uh, I, you know, I think that it would be, um, it's just like, it holds up so well. It's so just like, it feels modern, honestly. Like, it doesn't feel dated in any way. It's timeless. It has these wonderful characters who bounce off each other so well. And uh, it's so zippy. And yeah, I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the sequences in the film are just so charming and hilarious. Like, like I said, the plumber's wife, the plumber's daughter scene, I think is so funny. And uh, also kind of a sly commentary on uh, people really uh, choosing to uh, ignore or um, uh, kind of not even see like domestic <laughs> violence in, in mm. within, you know, like I think that it's very intentional. Uh, like the scene becomes like, you know, for you haven't seen the film, Peter and Ellie are trying to evade the police because they're looking for her. And so they pretend to be a very hostile married couple when the police come into their room and everyone just kind of, the police and the proprietor of the motel just kind of like step back and be like, okay, we'll just let you, you know, clearly this is not the couple that we think they are. And I think even the proprietor of the motel says, I told you they were just a nice married couple as they're like screaming at each other. And he's like, um, you know, insulting her and stuff. It's, I, it's very funny. And it's also, I think, and very, uh, seems to me to be some kind of commentary on, you know, what, what bystanders will let go by in front of them or, or be seen or what people will think of, think of as normal. Do you have any thoughts on, on that part of it? Yes. I think the scene is in part funny because of that, even though it's of course very disturbing in real life, the idea that we would just ignore domestic abuse and not try to step in at any point. But the fact that they are able to so seamlessly transition from being buddies into putting on that sort of show. And again, you have the teamwork aspect, but it's also just the fact that everybody around them is so befuddled and they don't know how to deal with it. And yeah, it also ties into the themes that we've been talking about where people are just unwilling to be aware of the problems that other people face. They would right. prefer just being ignorant, living in their own little world, and they just want to ignore this problem when they see it instead of stepping in. And Peter and Ellie, in a very calculated move, know, oh, if we're really unpleasant, if we appear to be a couple who are involved in a domestic abuse situation, they will leave us alone, yeah. which is sort of a saddening <laughs> thought. Instead of thinking, oh, somebody will step in and try to get the wife out of this situation. Right. Yeah. They know, oh no, this will make things very easy for us. Yeah, it's very darkly funny. Um, it, it's sad, but it's also, I think, like really, I think really clever, like pitch black comedy 
Um, and you know, their improv skills are really to be admired. Um, it's so, it, it's just funny, you know, because like they're so specific in that, you know, pretend dispute that it makes it funny even when it's really kind of um, disturbing when you, when you think about it. Um, but yeah, again, that's, that's like one of the best parts of the film. I mean, this movie has so many sequences that you could say are the best part. The hitchhiking, the, um, you know, the, the sing-along, all, you know, all of it. Um, so uh, Zita, do you have any final thoughts on the film? Anything you wanted to bring up? Well, I just think that everybody should really see it in terms of just understanding the romantic comedy genre. This one is essential. I think if I yeah. were to put together a course on understanding romantic comedies, I can completely understand why you saw it as part of a genre class, because I do think this one just really defines everything, defines the tropes, gives you a sense of what sort of acting is required to make this type of movie work and I'm making it sound like it's some sort of academic exercise <laughs> but I promise it's really fun to watch this is not yeah. like I'm telling you to watch Battleship Potemkin <laughs> or something where you think oh yes very important in terms of inventing montages but definitely not light Sunday afternoon viewing right. and this one really is it could be viewed on a Sunday afternoon with family and friends and uh yeah it's just a lot of fun it's not some sort of chore that you have to get through you should really enjoy it if you end up seeing it i would be shocked if somebody watched this and got nothing out yeah, of it yeah yeah exactly um i really have to uh you know emphasize what you're saying again uh this movie works on so many different levels one is just kind of a you know like uh, viscerally enjoyable, fun comedy, very funny, romantic, you know, great characters, but it also works on an academic level too, where you can really study this film and, and how it's shaped, you know, not just romantic comedies, but comedies in general. Um, and yeah, so it's so, yeah, it's so, it's so great because it works on those two levels equally well. And both, both ways to watch and enjoy the film are totally, valid and will offer a lot of rewards for uh, the audience member. Um, Zida, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Please tell us about your podcast and all the amazing work that you do. Well, I host a podcast called the 300 Passions podcast, where I sort of similar to your podcast, I go through romantic movies, but our focuses are slightly different in that I am working off of a list of AFI nominees. So they tend to make some odd choices, whereas your podcast, you focus on the real classics. So <laughs> I end up focusing on movies like 1963's Cleopatra, for example, yeah. where you were the wonderful guest for that episode and you had so much to contribute, where I think in most circles, that movie is not very well regarded, but doing the podcast still gives me the opportunity to discuss movies that maybe aren't fantastic that might not be of the highest quality but that still have some historical significance and that can be really interesting so we do romantic movies and they vary in quality but the commentary is always yeah. 
fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I really, really enjoy the podcast. And um, it's, you know, it's always fun to hear about um, movies like that that are, you know, nominated for the list. But um, yeah, I, I, and, or the ones that, sh- you know, shouldn't be anywhere near the list. I, I do want to, um, I do want to point out that It Happened One Night is, on pretty much been on every one of these AFI lists. It's in, um, it's uh, on the AFI 100 Years 100 Movies, 100 Years 100 Laughs list, on the 100 Years 100 Passions. Um, it was on the 100 Movies list for the 10th anniversary. Um, and it's also on the um, top romantic comedy uh, list as well at number three. Um, and it was nominated for the 100 movie quotes. Um, Ali's quote, well, I prove once and for all that the limb is mightier than the thumb that was nominated, but <laughs> did not make the list. It's a great quote. Um, mm. So yeah, this, it happened when, so I'm glad that you got to talk about a film that is so highly, <laughs> um, highly regarded and uh, full of accolades. And of course this movie also swept the Oscars in, in, in that year. So um, where can you find you online? Well, I'm on Twitter at Zeta underscore short, and I also write for In Session Film, Jump Cut Online, and Keith Loves Movies. So you'll see a lot of reviews from me on those websites. Yes, I highly recommend following Zeta and reading her work. You are incredible. I love your podcast and your writing. yeah, so thank, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at themanish89. That's T-H-E-M-A-N-I-S-H-8-9. Also, please follow the podcast at It Happened You. And remember to rate, review, subscribe to the show to help people find it. Uh, Zita, thanks again. And to listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>